On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens in Washington State erupted. Seismic activity at Mount St. Helens, which is about 96 miles south of Seattle, had begun some months before, actually on March 16th. Uh, and on that day, a 4.2 magnitude tremor was recorded. Four days later, between March 23rd and 24th, there were 174 different recorded tremors. So in a matter of a week, it went from not much to very, very active. The first eruption of the volcano occurred on March 27th when a 250-foot wide vent opened on top of the mountain. Ash on that day was blasted 10,000 feet into the air some of which came down nearly 300 miles away in Spokane. The ash caused static electricity, caused lightning bolts. As a result of what was considered pre-eruption events, authorities issued a hazard watch for a 50-mile radius around the mountain and attempted to evacuate all of the residents. The National Guard set up roadblocks uh, to keep people in, out, really, and to move people out. But the problem was these were easily avoided because it was a more rural terrain. There were mountain logging roads. You just couldn't keep people out. And many came as tourists to kind of see what was going on. Many of the residents evacuated, but a substantial number refused. As time went along through the month of April, more people, because of the waiting, decided Nothing is really going to happen, so let's go see or let's go home. But each day, the bulge on the side of Mount St. Helens grew larger and larger. The warning was clear. The danger was clear. But the waiting caused some to wonder if they had missed it. Advent is a season for waiting and preparation. It's the season of now and not yet. It proclaims that the Lord is coming and yet coming again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about the season of an advent in a letter that he wrote from prison on December 13th, 1943. He said, celebrating advent means being able to wait. Waiting is an art that our impatient age has forgotten. And he is writing some 70 years ago. Think now. We become less patient than even at that period of time. It wants to break open the ripe fruit when it has hardly finished planting the shoot. But all too often, the greedy eyes are only deceived. The fruit that seems so precious is still green on the inside. And disrespectful hands ungratefully toss aside what has so disappointed them. Whoever does not know the austere blessedness of waiting, that is, of hopefully doing without, will never experience the full blessedness of fulfillment. These sermons are designed to give us a picture of waiting, the opportunity to prepare our hearts so that we can, with the angel, proclaim, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today 
In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. A Savior has been born to us, to you, to me. But what kind of Savior has been born? As we wait for his return, let's look again at who it is that is returning. As we celebrate this time of Christmas, let's look again at what kind of Savior. Last week, we looked at the life of Samuel and the call of Samuel, where God calls him and he says, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And God instills on him a prophetic anointing. He also raises him up to be the high priest and to be the final judge over the nation of Israel, which is like a king. So Samuel is an archetypal picture of the prophet, priest, and king that Jesus is coming. Thousands of years before Jesus was born, God gave us a picture of who Christ would be in the person of Samuel, in that he would be a prophet, a priest, and a king. So over the weeks ahead, I want to look at Jesus as a prophet, Jesus as a priest, and then on Christmas Eve, Jesus as our king. So today, Jesus as a prophet. A prophet. Who would you say in your mind was the greatest Old Testament prophet? You don't have to say it. Just think about it for a second. Who was the greatest Old Testament prophet? Probably have different ideas in your head. One who doesn't necessarily stand out as the greatest is called the greatest. In Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 and 11, it says about Moses, Since no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. Not the only time Moses is called the greatest prophet. We usually think of a prophet as a, as a person who foretells the future, prophetic word about the days ahead. Or in the Old Testament, they also enforced the covenant. God made a covenant with his people. When they strayed away from it, he sent the prophet to come in to say, you've gone astray. Uh, We see their writings calling the nation back, confronting the people with their sin. Many of the prophets were workers of great miracles. If you think of Elijah and Elisha, uh, workers of miracles that, that told and uh, stamped God's approval on their prophetic, prophetic words. In the New Testament, a prophet was given for the building up of the body of Christ, for edifying the body, for us becoming stronger. Moses was called the greatest prophet because of his ability to hear from God and to speak the word of the Lord. He didn't make many predictions about the future, but he did make one very, very important one. It's in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth He will tell them everything I command him. 
Probably the simplest definition of one who is a prophet is one who speaks the words of God, a spokesperson for God. We saw this in Samuel last week when he heard from God and he spoke to the people the word of God. A spokesperson for God. If you think about it, we can see in Jesus why he is the greatest prophet. He's the word made flesh. The word. A spokesperson for God. The way he embodied the word of God. He not only spoke the word of God. He not only commanded forth the word of God. He not only did miracles in God. But he was the word incarnate. In John 6.14. It says. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed. They began to say. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet, that recognition, this is the guy Moses talked about. This is the prophet, the Messiah, the one who is going to come and save. Even the people around him, because of the signs, because of the words, because of the authority with which he spoke, recognized that Jesus was a prophet. The problem with being a prophet many times, is often the message of a prophet is not well received. If you look at the Old Testament, many times the word that the prophet brings is a word of correction, of return to the Lord. And by the way, almost none of us want to hear that. I mean, really, none of us want to hear that we need, our, we need to get our lives in order. You may have read recently about a, uh, at a, a religious college that... Uh, They had a chapel service in which a preacher called the college-age students back to repentance, and one was so offended that he wrote the president a letter. One of the college students was so offended he wrote an editorial and the president a letter saying, this violates me by telling me I'm a sinner and that I have to return to God. The, The president's response was, grow up. I mean, basically, you may have read his response was, we're, we're, we're running a college, not a daycare. Which I thought was inappropriate. But it, to me, it's a sign of the times. We are, we've come to a time we can't speak the truth without offending. Why? Because the truth offends. It has been that way. It is not anything new. They killed the prophets before Jesus. He said, look, if they persecuted and killed the prophets before me... What do you think they're going to do to me? And what do you think they're going to do to you? We as Americans have lived in such an age of comfort that we as Christians believe it is our God-given right to be able to say and proclaim the truth without repercussions. People, that is not our God-given right. Our God-given right is to proclaim the truth regardless of the repercussions. I'm not talking about being offensive purposefully. Just speak the truth of who Christ is and what he came to do, and it is. The gospel is an offense. It is a stumbling block. They killed Jesus because he spoke the truth. Because he was the prophet, they put him on the cross and he died. He rose again, however, demonstrating that death could not hold him. And then he tells his followers to go and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit in which the anointing of God will come upon them. Days later it does, and on the day of Pentecost, 
50 days after Passover, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up and preaches a sermon. Part of what he says is this in the book of Acts. He says, now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. That's a way to start off a sermon, isn't it? Don't, I, look, I understand you're idiots. You acted in ignorance. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. By the way, I don't have time to get into this, but no one saw that the Messiah was going to suffer. Only afterwards did they look back and were able to say, oh, wait a minute, it's all in here. They felt the Messiah would be a victorious, conquering warrior who would lead the nation of Israel back to a place of prominence. Instead, God sent a suffering servant, Isaiah 53, to suffer on our behalf. Repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, and here's his quote from Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Peter is saying, Jesus is he who Moses talked about. Moses said it, the people recognized it and said it in John, and then Peter reiterates it on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is the prophet that God spoke of, that Moses spoke of because of the word of God. What are we to do with this prophet? What are we to do with this prophet Jesus, according to this passage? I think it's in red for you, even. You must listen to everything he tells you. It's a trick question, but I I gave it away for you. Peter tells them to listen. He is the prophet. Listen to him. If you don't listen to him, you're going to be cut off. On the Mount of Transfiguration, remember Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus on this mountain. Jesus, really his glory breaks through. He's transfigured. And Moses and Elijah join him. And you may be saying, I, I, you know, this sounds too mythological to even be real. Listen, I am faith, receive what God is speaking. Moses and Elijah, the lawgiver, prophet Elijah, join Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. <laughs> Peter, I love Peter. Peter's great. Doesn't know what to do. And he says, hey, let's build some shelters for you, Jesus, for Moses and Elijah. If you think about it, this is really hysterical because you got Jesus' glory breaking through. you got Moses. you got Elijah. Do what all Baptists do. Let's build a building. Let's just build something. It'll be great. And then years ahead, we can come back and say, here's where the building happened. It says in Matthew 17, 5, while he was still speaking. So while Peter is still blabbing about, let's build some shelters, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
Listen to him. Listen to him. Here's what I would like to say to us today. We cannot proclaim ignorance about God's word. It's been given to us. It's been revealed to us in the person of Jesus and through his written word. What are we to do with it? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear. We are to listen. To those who receive him and to those who listen to him, here's what we'll receive. First, we'll receive forgiveness because he proclaims forgiveness. He proclaims a lot of things, but I want these three to really hone into us here at this Christmas time. In Matthew 9, verse 6, this is the healing of the paralyzed man. You remember they, they, the four friends can't get to Jesus, so they go up on the roof. They cut a hole in the guy's roof and lowers the guy down. How would you like this at your house? You're having a party. Jesus is there. People can't get in. Next thing you know, they're cutting through the roof. Suddenly, a, a paralyzed guy gets lowered down. The people are offended, the religious leaders, uh, about forgiveness of sins and healing the guy. And Jesus says, which is greater, healing or forgiveness? And they don't say anything because they know this is a trick theological question. If we say healing, then he can forgive. If you say forgive, he can heal. Jesus says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He came to forgive our sins. He came at the Last Supper, we, we said it this morning, this, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for what? For the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. Through his words and his action, he brings forgiveness of sins. Now, you may not know that you need forgiveness of sins, but it is our greatest need, really. We'll see why in just a second. But we must have our sins forgiving, forgiven for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Whether we know it or not, we all need forgiveness. There's a thing on uh, cruise ships that they do 30 minutes before the boat leaves. Uh, the word is, it, it's called a muster drill. And a muster drill is where, anybody been on a cruise before? I know it's a little more difficult here. I'm laughing because I know some of your stories about cruises. But on a cruise, they have this drill called a muster drill. And the purpose of the muster drill is to prepare passengers for safe evacuation in the event of an emergency. So they have to familiar, familiarize themselves with where the lifeboats are. And on many cruise ships, they make everybody get their life vest out of their stateroom and then come on deck. So you see, people from every background, every race, every, everybody is wearing the same life jacket. Everybody's got the same one on. But to me, this is, this is a picture of Christ and forgiveness. We all, I don't care, you could be in a tuxedo, you could be in your shorts, you could be in your swimsuit, it doesn't matter, we all need that life jacket. We all stand before Jesus in need of forgiveness. That's the message of the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We receive, if we'll listen to him, he proclaims forgiveness in his words, in his actions, in all that he has done. He also proclaims relationship. He proclaims relationship. Here's what Jesus says in John 14. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. The Word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. He made his home with us. You see, the gospel... The gospel is about relationship. We've said this many times. Christianity is in its basic nature relational. It's about relationship with God. Why can we not have relationship with God on our own? Because our sins block us from having relationship with God. Our sins keep us from having relationship with him. And there's nothing we can do on our own to overcome our own sin. We can't work our way out. We can't earn our way out. We can't do anything anything. So God, in his grace, sent his son Jesus. The word became flesh and made his home among us. So he proclaims forgiveness. Why? Just so you'll be forgiven? Just so you'll feel better about yourself? Just so you'll have no guilt anymore? I mean, those are pretty good benefits, really. But no, so that we'll have relationship with him. He said, if you listen to my words and obey them, You'll have relationship. You'll have relationship. We'll make our home in your heart. Story about a woman named Connie who was trying to cram all, all of her Christmas preparations into one single day. Some of you, I've been like this. You're on a mission from God. I'm going to go and do all my shop, do everything in one day. So starting at 9 a.m., she shopped. Her entire Christmas list, bought a Christmas tree, poinsettias, ordered a turkey, carried home the groceries for Christmas dinner, lugged a big box of Christmas lights, tree decorations, decorated the tree, midnight, finished carefully wrapping presents for her husband, Robert, and their three daughters. By the way, I don't know where the heck Robert was through this whole process, but (laughs) Connie was doing it all. Wearily, she began to congratulate herself on a job well done. And then suddenly she remembered, oh, the Christmas cards. I forgot to address the Christmas cards. Tired, but determined. She addressed, signed, stamped all 89 of her Christmas cards before she went to bed. Then she topped off her day's work by writing a check to her credit card company, When the holidays were over, the extent of her exhaustion became apparent when she had her check from Visa returned to her, which said incorrect signature. And on closer inspection, she realized that the reason for the return was in the signature line she had signed with love, Connie, Robert, and the girls. Some of us are so caught up that the waiting is gone, the preparation is gone, it's all about just the stuff. 
Christmas is a time of relationship. It's relationship with God. That's why we do Advent, is to prepare our hearts and to remember this is about our relationship with God. This is also about our relationship with one another. Jesus, as prophet, proclaims forgiveness and he proclaims relationship. And if you read the gospel well, as we've done, hopefully from the gospel of John and into 1 John, we know that loving God also results in what? Loving your brothers. If I say I love my brother, I mean I hate my brother, but love God, I'm a liar and the truth is not in me. It's about relationship. He proclaims relationship. Third and finally, he proclaims freedom and victory. He says, John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's, here's the picture that Christ gives for us. He came and he won the battle. As a result of his victory, we can have peace. Are you with me? Peace comes as a result of victory. Peace in our lifetime, so to speak, comes as a result of victory in battle. Jesus won the victory. We have peace. We have victory. He proclaims this victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God, he gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory through him, if we'll but listen. Here's the, here's the, the truth that we've got to receive at some point. We are not worthless, defeated individuals. In Christ, we are victorious. Now, victory may look different than you think victory looks like, but you are victorious. We are somebodies. Not because we're so special, but because he has made us special. If we'll but listen to him. Jesus came for our victory. I have uh, a number of trees in my yard, and at times my trees look like this where these vines just grow up and take over the tree. I, I, you know, when I moved in the house, I I didn't really know what to do with these vines. I'm like, man, I'm going to have to get a big ladder, crawl up, tear these vines off my tree. But then I was told that if I'll just cut them off at the root, if I'll cut them off at the root, they'll die. And they do. This is a tree that looked like that other tree. It's not the same tree. This other tree. Tree, I haven't got to cutting off the roots yet. But this tree, this pine tree, about two years ago, I cut off. It looked as bad as the one on your left. Jesus came to say, I'm cutting off sin at the root. If you try and tear it off one thing at a time, you're going to be forever battling against. But victory is this. I came and I cut it off. Now it's going to die in your life. Now, it, the picture on my tree, it took some time for this vine to die, but it was dead, even though for a period of time it still looked alive. Are you with me? Do you understand? This is what Jesus came to proclaim for each and every one of us. Forgiveness, relationship, victory. This is what we experience when we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior.
By the way, I wouldn't be fair if I didn't also give the other side just for one second. I'm not going to dwell on it. But to those who do not listen to him, he proclaims judgment. For judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Other words throughout the New Testament say, Peter even said on the day of Pentecost, listen to him or be judged. Listening to him results in forgiveness and relationship, victory and life. Not listening to him results in blindness, oppression, unforgiveness. When Mount St. Helens erupted in May of 1980, and I've told this story before, but this to me really hammers home this listening aspect. So bear with me if you've heard this before. It's been a number of years, but this is a powerful to me story. As I said, before it erupted, they evacuated a 50-mile radius. Right at the base of the mountain was a guy by the name of Harry Truman. Harry Truman was 83 years old. He ran a lodge, which he had run for his entire life, on a lake called Spirit Lake, which is ironic to me. And so he refused to leave. He said, here is his quote, The mountain will never betray me. I've lived on this lake and in the shadow of that mountain my entire life. He became a cause celeb. Newspaper organizations would enter him. He'd be holding his drink, not sure what was in it, holding his drink on Spirit Lake, I think with spirits in his hands, and say, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. This mountain is always, it's never. When the volcano erupted, a landslide occurred. And the landslide, listen to this, the landslide moved over the face of the earth at 150 miles an hour. Part of it hit Spirit Lake. And it wasn't a big lake, but the the estimates are that waves hit 600 feet high when the landslide hit the lake raising the level of the lake immediately 295 feet. Harry and his lodge were covered, and he's now buried beneath 150 feet of volcanic debris. On the same day, there's a young National Park worker by the name of David Johnston. David Johnston was... uh, warning people to leave, and he was located six miles away from the volcano. David Johnson is the one person who accurately predicted what the volcano was going to do. Everybody else was saying the volcano is going to erupt upward and burst upward, and David Johnson said, all my studies show that it's going to be a lateral blast, meaning that it's going to go sideways, not upward. On the day of the eruption, when the eruption occurred, David Johnston radioed back to the headquarters saying, Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. And they were the first signals that the eruption had occurred. Indeed, David Johnston was right. It was a lateral blast. Our minds can't even comprehend what happened in the minutes that followed. The blast was a mixture of hot gases and pulverized rock that moved along the ground at speeds of up to 670 miles an hour. It leveled trees in a fan-shaped area 
for 23 miles, all the trees were down, killing everything in its path, including the only man who accurately predicted what the volcano was going to do. His body was never found or recovered. Here's, here's the point to me. You can, you can walk in ignorance and be destroyed. You can have the truth in your head and be destroyed. To listen to Jesus is to hear his words and obey them. The man, the wise man who builds his house on the rock, what does he do? He hears and obeys. Hearing is not enough. We need to listen, but the the context of listening is this. We need to understand that unto us a Savior has been born. And we need a Savior. We need forgiveness. We need relationship. We long for victory. So I want to encourage you during this season of Advent to once again to recognize who Jesus is, this Son whom is loved by the Father God, and may we have ears to hear. Lord, we pray this morning that we would be followers of yours. Lord, we thank you that you are a great God and greatly to be praised. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son to die on our behalf. We thank you as a result that the prophetic nature of of him being the Word, made flesh, proclaiming the Word in both word and deed, that as a result we have forgiveness, we can have relationship with you, we can walk in victory. So, Lord, this morning, may we say, speak, your servants are listening, we're obeying, we're following after you. Lord, we love you. For those who are here today who don't know Christ as the one who leads their life and forgives their sins, I pray that, Spirit of God, you would draw them to the name of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your life-giving word. In Jesus' name.